All right, well, good morning, church. It's going to be a little slim pickings through the month of July. So I'm glad you're here today. It's not July quite yet, but we have a lot of people going to be gone for a lot of different reasons. Let me turn this one down. Okay. Ready to get into the Word? All right. So we're going to be in Genesis 47. We're going to be starting with verse 28. We're going to go through Genesis chapter 48 this morning. We're almost finished. We have, well, after this Sunday, we'll have only two chapters left in the book of Genesis. And then eventually, sometime soon after, not too long possibly, uh, we'll start the Gospel of John. So Jacob has reunited with Joseph. The whole family has moved on down to Egypt. They set up home uh, in the land of Goshen. I wanted to show you one, one thing. I watched a little um, documentary a couple days ago. It wasn't about this. It was about something else. It was about Mount Sinai, actually, and which mountain is the true Mount Sinai. And it was actually a really good documentary. But I saw this satellite image in the documentary, and I wanted to uh, show it. <clears throat> so, and the reason I wanted to show it is, is that this is the, the northern tip of Egypt, okay? So... The Nile comes right up in the middle of all that green stuff. That's the Nile Delta, okay, all that green. That's the land of Goshen, okay? So if you want to know where the Israelites settled when they came into Egypt, okay, where, see that red dot that's on there? That's where they've found the ruins of the city of Avarice and where Joseph's statue is and everything. That's where it is right there. So when his family came in down from the land of Canaan into Egypt and he wanted them and he met them in the land of Goshen and he had them stop there and then he had them ask for that land with the pharaohs, so you can see why. Just by looking at the satellite image, you can see exactly why he wanted his family to settle. Because if that's all desert and that's not desert. Okay? You can see why he wanted his family to settle in that area. That is the best land in all of Egypt. And so that's where you had them settle. Verse 27, which was what we left off with last week that said, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. That's it right there. That's the area. So you know. All right? History. We're studying biblical history, even more so. So we are going to read Genesis chapter 47, starting with verse 28. And it says, And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him, and then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. And then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, in the land of Canaan and bless me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. 
And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Eprath. And I buried her there on the way to Eprath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. And then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim, Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. And he said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And so he blessed them that day saying, by you, Israel will pronounce blessings saying, God made you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, uh, that you can speak this to us. Speak it to our hearts. I pray that your spirit just speak your words this morning, Lord. And I pray that you just work this out and draw us closer to you for the message that you have for us. And how we can see in this passage here today a key to our life in Christ. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last part of chapter 47 is really simple. It's just Jacob making his funeral plans. Jacob knows that he's getting old and he's about to pass away. And so at the last part of chapter 47 there, he brings Joseph in and he wants to make sure, sure that Joseph understands what to do and how to do it. And this is just really good advice for, for everyone, really. Right? He, he says, I want to be taken back home. I want to be buried in the tombs with my fathers. That's the cave of Machpelah in Hebron. That's the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, which Abraham bought. Uh, that's the cave where Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, and Rebekah, and Jacob's wife Leah are buried. He says, I want to go back there. I want to be buried in that cave. And Joseph agrees, and Joseph will do so. And you'll see that when we get to chapter 50. You'll see that he does that. And like I said, this is all good advice. And before we move on, I just want to say, hey, make your funeral plans ahead of time. Right? 
It's right here in the Bible, getting prepared ahead of time because otherwise you have no idea what your kids are going to do after you pass away. Who knows what they'll do <laughs> with your body or with your funeral plans, right? They could take your cremated remains, assuming you're cremated, right? And they could mix them into a cement sphere and they could place you on an underwater reef. They call that a reef ball, okay? That's something people do with their cremated remains. You can become a memorial reef. If you, if you don't want to do that, make sure you're, right? Possibly, this one's even better. Possibly they could cut up your dead body and leave it out for the local birds to consume. consume. That, that's what they do in Tibet. So if you don't want that being done, make sure your plans are, are done. You know, in South Korea, they take the ashes and they compress them into these little colorful beads and they hang them around the house. They call those uh, burial beads. You know, back in the 60s and the 70s, they had those bead curtains where you had to walk through to go from one room to the other. Right? Yeah, that's possibly someone's deceased relative. <laughs> Just saying. If you don't want that, maybe you want a jazz funeral, right? New Orleans style, because that would be a cool way. Right? Big parade of musicians dancing down the road carrying your casket. Want your ashes sent to space. Right? Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, his wife, uh, Majel Roddenberry, who played Nurse Chapel in the original series, James Duhon, who played Scotty, uh, and uh, Nicole Nichols, who played Uhura. They've all had their ashes sent to space. Maybe you want your ashes sent to space. No? You don't want your ashes sent? Maybe you want to be cryogenically frozen and hidden in Disneyland. That's just a rumor. Walt, Walt Disney actually, <laughs> Walt Disney was actually just cre cremated. But you could be like my grandfather, who just wanted his ashes spread down the 18th fairway at Cedar Crest Golf Course in Marysville, <laughs> uh, which we didn't actually do. But or I think it, you know under the rose gar rose bush or whatever. Maybe you just want something like that. But but it tells us that Jacob's going to live to be 147 years old. And we don't really get a picture of his life from when he came into Egypt at 130 to when he passes away at 147. The, that, those 17 years, we don't really get a picture of what the, the remainder of what we're going to read here in the book of Genesis is basically the end of his life. Right? When, he come, when he blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, when he blesses his sons, and then when he passes away. So we really just get this picture of what happens at the end of his life, the end years. Now Joseph at this time is probably around in his mid-50s. His sons are not little toddlers. Okay, They're probably in their late teens, possibly in their early 20s. It just depends on when they were actually born. And it tells us in chapter 48, it says, Behold, your father is ill. And so it says, Joseph took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they go to see Jacob. Your father's getting ready to pass away. So he says, hey, sons, come on. And it says that Israel strengthens himself. You know, if you've you know, visited someone who was ill and passing away, when a loved one comes to see them, they put on a good show, right? So they strengthen themselves. They sit up. They're like, you know. So that's what he does. And he reminds Jacob of this. He says, listen, 
God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, which is Bethel, in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me, and he said, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of people, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So he's basically, he, he's almost word for word, not quite, but almost word for word, uh, re- telling Joseph what the promise that was given to Abraham, right? Back in Genesis 17, for example. Um, Genesis you know, 17, 2, uh, God tells Abraham, Abraham that I will make my covenant between me and you and I may multiply you greatly. Well, Jacob says that to Joseph. Genesis 17, 6, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And that's basically what Jacob is telling Joseph. And in Genesis 17, 8, God tells Abraham, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And that's what Jacob is telling Joseph. So those words that were originally told to Abraham, Abraham passed down to Isaac, and Isaac passed down to Jacob, and Jacob's passing down to Joseph. Um, it had been passed down from generation to generation. And now Jacob, you know, now Joseph's going to basically pass it on down to his sons. The promise that we have in Christ, without a doubt, should be passed down word for word to our kids so that they can pass it on down to their kids. Right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9 says this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, which means pretty much all the time. Right? You should be talking of them all the time of the God's word. And it says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now you don't have to go around and get tattoos of God's word. You don't have to wear all the little phylacteries or whatever they call those things uh, with, you know, the scripture rolled up inside. You don't have to have all the ornamental thing like the Jews, like how extreme it got with the Jews. But if you want to write them on the doorposts of your house, you want to write them on your gate? There's a lot of places that, a lot of people when they're building the house, if they're a Christian family before the house is finished, they go in and they write verses on the foundation of the house or they write them within the walls. Churches do this too, right? They, they write them and then when they finish that, those words are then within the walls and those words are now on the foundation. We print out uh, Bible verses in our house and they're hanging by the kids' beds and they're hanging on the mirrors in the bathroom for the kids and, and stuff like that. It's a way just to continually have God's word front and center, for you to be reminded of it. It's a good thing to do. So Israel's passing that on to Joseph. Joseph will pass that on to his sons. But he's doing more than just passing the blessing on. He's doing more than just blessing his sons. He also adopts them. I don't know if you understand that's what's going on here, but Jacob adopts Joseph's sons. That's what he's, that's what he's telling uh, Joseph when he comes in, he says, now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came are mine. Right? He says, they are mine. Right? He says, they are, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And then he goes on and he says, they shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. 
So what he's saying is basically Ephraim and Manasseh are taking the place of Reuben and Simeon. I have adopted them into the family and I'm going to call them by the names of my sons. So basically he's adopting them. They shall be called by the names of her brothers. Adoption in the Hebrew mindset, even really you know, with ours, is the idea that they're now co-equal, right? So he's telling Joseph, listen, your sons are now co-equal with my biological sons. You, <laughs> you, Joseph, are my biological sons. I'm adopting your sons, and they're now, in a sense, in that way, becoming your brothers, right? And perhaps they were actually replacements for Reuben and Simeon because Reuben and Simeon, as we'll get into more possibly next week, they'd sort of been disqualified from their positions anyway because of sin. So possibly they were actually replacements, right? But he's saying that he's adopting Ephraim and Mansa into the family at, at the highest level as if they were going to be his first and his second born. So he's not just passing a blessing on, he's also passing an inheritance on Right, to Joseph's sons by adopting them into the family in that way. <clears throat> so Jacob adopts them and makes them the name of their brothers. Makes their name the name of their brothers. You know, in Romans 8, chapters, verses 14 to 15, it tells us that for all who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Right? Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7 says, When the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. Right? And if a son, you're an heir through God. Right? We've been adopted too. We've been adopted in the family, and therefore now the inheritance the blessings that come through Christ right, come to us as well because we've been adopted in. Ephesians 1.4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Christ Jesus who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him, which is adoption, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved. God has adopted you. God has adopted you and I'm not sure that we all look at it that way sometimes but God has adopted you because of his love for you. God has adopted you and he says he wants you to be in his family. And that's an incredible honor. God says, I want you to be in my family. Through Christ, you've been adopted in. Now, this adoption that Jacob does here isn't just a figurative adoption. Okay? He's not just saying that. He, they actually were adopted in and were considered now, in that way, sons of Jacob tribes of Israel, right? So because of this adoption, this is why we have 13 tribes of Israel. And though when you look at all the combinations of the tribes of Israel that are listed in the Old Testament, there's over 20 different combinations where the tribes of Israel are listed in the Old Testament. 
where the 12 tribes of Israel are listed in the Old Testament, none of those combinations are exactly the same, really, because of Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay? So, now, just also so you know, the number 12 is often associated with government or administration uh, in God's eyes. Chuck Smith says the number 12 is a picture of God's divine guidance. Right? So there are 12 tribes, there's 12 apostles, there's 12 princes of Ishmael, there's 12 pillars on Moses' altar, there's 12 stones on the high priest's breastplate, there's 12 cakes of showbread, there's 12 silver platters, silver bowls, gold pans for the service of the tabernacle. Like There was 12 spies to search out the land, 12 memorial stones, 12 governors under Solomon, 12 stones in Elijah's altar. And we can go on. 12, you know, 12, uh, 12,000 from 12 tribes sealed and preserved through the tribulation. Heaven has 12 gates of 12 pearls and 12 angels at the gates. You want to do a study on 12? Feel free. <laughs> right? That's just to tell you that the number 12 is special to God. But there are 13 tribes of Israel, technically, because of the adoption. Though only 12 are ever listed at one time. Now when the sons come in and he gives this blessing and he tells Joseph that he's going to adopt his sons, he doesn't notice right, right away that the sons are, are there. Matter of fact, it tells us he's blind. He can't actually see. So he sees the shadow and he says, who's that? <laughs> to, which J, to which Joseph says, those are my sons. You get the impression almost that he had never met the sons up until this point, but that's a little hard to believe because he's been here 17 years. In Egypt, you would have thought that he had met the sons, but it just tells us in verse 10 that he's blind. So he saw that someone else was in the room with Joseph. He didn't know who it was exactly. He says, who's that? He says, those are my sons. He said, well, bring them here, right? I'm going to bless them. And so Joseph brings his sons and he places them exactly where he wants them in front of his father in the perfect position so that his father will bless them, that his right hand will go uh, on Manasseh, who's the oldest, and his left hand would go on, on um, yeah, Ephraim. Because the right hand, of course, is the favored position. It's the position of strength and skill. When you're blessing the sons, you put your right hand on the oldest because the oldest, the firstborn, should get the special favored blessing. But... Jacob knowingly, even though he's not you know, seeing very well, knowingly crosses his hands and puts his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh and does the blessing. That makes Joseph a little upset, but he gives them a blessing crossing his hands. And I want you to read this blessing. If you haven't really looked at it, it says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked the God who has been my shepherd, some of your translations may say who feeds me, all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Who's he referring to? I mean, listen, look at this picture of God, a God who's a shepherd, Right? A God which fed me, like I said, as it says in some translation, the angel who redeemed me. Right? The angel of the Lord is the redeemer. Who's that? That's Jesus. Right? Jacob's blessing them right? under Jesus, basically. It's this great picture of Jesus working in the life of Jacob. 
It's the first reference also to God being a shepherd in the Bible, if you want to put down in that in your little trivia notes. Because you see in this picture of being sustained, of being cared for, being redeemed, all through the same God. You can also say it's a picture of the Trinity working in the life of Jacob. This was a great testimony of grace. It was not a testimony of personal merit. When, when Jacob is saying this, he's not saying about, I, 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 who have been so great and faithful to God my entire life, bless you. No, what he's saying is God who has been so faithful to me. God who has cared for me, walked alongside me, fed me, and redeemed me. That God is going to bless you too. It's a picture of how faithful God was to Jacob. But like I said, Joseph was a little upset. He's like, Dad, no, no, you placed your hands on the wrong. Your hands are crossed. No, no. But Jacob was being guided by the Lord here. We know that because Hebrews eleven twenty one tells us that by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Right? This is why he's in the hall of faith for this blessing right here. He was guided by God to do exactly what he did, which is to bless the younger over the older. Ephraim over Manasseh. And when Joseph is upset about it, Jacob just rebukes him basically. He, he says, you didn't have your hands placed correctly, Dad. I know you're having a hard time seeing. It's okay. It's a little dark in here. We can light a few more candles so you can understand what's going on. And he's like, no, no, I know what I'm doing. I know exactly what I did. He shall become a people as well. He shall also be great. Nevertheless, he says, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Right? The younger will be greater. And this, of course, is fulfilled throughout the history of Israel. Right? Manasseh is often referred to as the half-tribe of Manasseh. And the reason Manasseh is often referred to as the half-tribe is that when they were to cross into the promised land, half of the tribe didn't. And half of the tribe did, right? So half of the tribe chose to reside east of the Jordan River. You can see this in Numbers 32 and Joshua 13, etc., right? Because they believed that that area, the Transjordan, was more suitable land to raise their flocks. And the rest of the tribe settled in right west of the Jordan in the land of Canaan. They followed the, Joshua's command to enter and possess the promised land. So half of the tribe of Manasseh, and quite frankly, a lot of the the tribe of Manasseh has this history of not being obedient to God's word. They had this history of failing to obey. They failed to obey God when he commanded them to destroy the Canaanites. Right? And part of this failure was due to their lack of faith because they thought that uh, they were an unconquerable foe and they couldn't beat them. Right? But there were times when Manasseh also exhibited faithfulness to God. Showed that they were faithful. Gideon, for example, is from the tribe of Manasseh. And and Gideon, remember, God had called him to go save Israel out of Midian's hand. And and Gideon's like, well, first he he was like, you know, we got to test this, make sure this is coming from God. I don't really want to, you know, Gideon would become one of Israel's best judges, but he questioned God when God asked him to do this. Right. And so, you know, he says, listen, you know, our clan is like the is like the weakest. And you want us to go do this? I don't know that that we 
can do this. So he takes like, what was it? Like 35, or 35,000 troops with him to go do this and God pairs them down to 300. And then they go in and they conquer him, right? I mean, Gideon wanted proof from God that he was supposed to do this and then he got the proof and then he gets the troops. Okay, I feel a little better now because we've got 32,000 people going along with me. This is good. And then God brings it down to 300 men Yet, even with that weakest paltry force, right? The weakest clan in Manasseh, even with those 300 people, they routed the enemy. And the battle proved that God was with the half-tribe of Manasseh. So you have those times of their faithfulness as well throughout the Bible. Right now, the tribe of Ephraim would, central, would settle in central Canaan. They would be just northwest of the Dead Sea. They were bordered by Manasseh on the north and Dan and Benjamin on the south. Ephraim became the leading tribe of the northern kingdom. Uh, the, the city of Samaria was in uh, Ephraim's territory. Uh, yet, but they weren't a perfect tribe either. None, obviously, none of the tribes were ever really perfect. Uh, they would be chastised for their idolatry, uh, their partnership with heathen nations. You can see that in Hosea 12, for example. And the tribe of Ephraim was taken into captivity by the Assyrians and, uh, you know, when the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered. Yet, despite all that, Jeremiah 31.20, for example, it says, is Ephraim my dear son? Is, is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. That's how he viewed Ephraim. So both tribes were blessed. Both tribes had their good and their bad. But Ephraim was greater as a tribe. Even to the point that where the name Ephraim was used to refer to the whole northern nation of Israel, basically. Because they were so large. Instead of, you know, they would just call them Ephraim. Later when Moses took a census of all the children of Israel, Manasseh had 32,000 descendants who were over the age 20 and able to go to war. And Ephraim had 40,000. And basically it was from that point on uh, the tribe of Ephraim, the younger, is almost always listed before that of Manasseh, the older. Right? The younger shall be greater. And this just shows the idea of firstborn in the Bible, which is often a position of preeminence, not necessarily meaning the first out of the womb. Understand, right? I mean, David, David had the position of firstborn, even though he was the youngest son. God chose Abel over Cain, right? Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, even Joseph over Reuben, and now Ephraim over Manasseh. It has nothing to do with actually when you were born, whether you were the first out or not. It really has to do with your heart and who you are before God. And God's looking at things with an internal, right? An eternal view. He's seeing things we aren't. Jeremiah 31, 9, God says, I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. That's what God said. Now, not only is he blessing Joseph's sons, but he passes a blessing on, you know, this is a blessing to Joseph as well. It would be a blessing to Joseph just because his sons were blessed, but he also passes this on to Joseph. He says, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. 
This is a reference to Joseph. He says, moreover, I have given to you rather than, than to your brothers one mountain slope, or as it says in some translations, an extra portion that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. So it's a passing of the torch. Jacob knows he's getting ready to pass on. He's, he's passing these blessings on to Joseph. Joseph, who he has put ahead of all the other brothers himself. Right? And he tells him, God will be with you. Which is a good promise to have. It's good to know, right? For someone to remind you that God will be with you. God is with you. Not only that, God will bring you back to the land of your fathers, he tells Joseph. And then he, gets, he promises him a double portion. Right? I'm giving you an extra portion. That's an eternal promise. That's an eternal promise. And the reason we know that is because of Ezekiel 47.13. In Ezekiel 47.13, the Lord is describing how Israel, the, their nation, is going to be laid out. At a time when they're going to occupy the land like they're supposed to. Everything that God had promised to them from the, from the borders on each side, everything that's laid out in the Bible and Numbers, everything that you can read about Israel's land. In Ezekiel 47, it says, this is the boundary by which you shall divide the land of inheritance among the 12 tribes because the 12 tribes of Israel will occupy the land. And he says, Joseph shall have two portions. So in Ezekiel 47, God is reaffirming the fact that, that Joseph, one, gets a double portion. And this is going to be in the future when Israel occupies the land. Because remember, what did he say? What did God tell Abraham? That Abraham passed down to Isaac, that Isaac passed down to Jacob. He says, this is an eternal, eternal possession. So the land that I've given you is yours forever and always. They may not occupy all that land now, but they will occupy all that land. They will get it. In the future, Israel will occupy all the land that God has promised them. And it'll be occupied by the 12 tribes of Israel and Joseph shall have two portions just as promised. So to wrap this up this morning, we're going to rewind to when Joseph's sons were born. Because this is really kind of centered around the blessing on his two sons. Manasseh and Ephraim. And that's back in Genesis chapter 41. You don't have to necessarily turn back there, but it's in Genesis chapter 41. It's verses 50 to 52. It says, Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And in the name of the second, he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And just so you know, affliction creates fruit. Okay? That's what that verse says. But it comes through God. God can make you fruitful in the midst of your affliction. So anyway, Joseph named his sons Hebrew names, not Egyptian names, which shows a couple of things to us. One, that despite how Joseph had been treated by his brothers, sold into slavery, right? He knew that he was still a son of Israel. And two, he was in Egypt, but he was not Egyptian. All right? Just as we are to be in the world, but not of the world. So he names his firstborn son Manasseh. And Manasseh means forgetful or simply to forget, 
right? Emily's favorite phrase. I forgot, right? I'm going to rename her Manasa. She, she just doesn't know it yet. Oh, wait, maybe she does, right? And Ephraim means fruitful. And now Ephraim, the root of that word, comes from the word Epitaph, which is the, where we get um, Bethlehem, okay? Which means ash heap, if you remember when we talked about it. Um, back when we were talking about Jacob coming back into the land of Canaan and um, his wife dying there on the way to Bethlehem. And so what you can think of when you think of ash heap, of course, is fertilizer. Right? Fertilizer, compost, it helps your fruit grow. It makes you fruitful. Matter of fact, what it means is doubly fruitful. Who's getting a double portion? Right? Doubly fruitful. So what do we have here in, in Joseph's two sons are forgetful and fruitful. You've heard that phrase. Forgive and forget. They are forgetful and fruitful. But the other F word that goes with that is forgive. Okay? It's forgive. Joseph said, God has made me forget all my hardships right, and all my father's house. Now, did God wipe his memory? Is it like Men in Black, right, where he comes up with that little thing, goes boop, and everyone forgets what happened? No. No, it's not. Did Joseph really forget his hardships? Did Joseph really forget that he'd been sold into slavery? Did Joseph just forget what his brothers had done to him? No, he hadn't forgotten. He hadn't forgotten. He knew what had happened. He still remembered all that stuff. But what is he saying? He's saying that at that time, he made a choice to forget the troubles of his past, to overlook them. And at that time, to forgive his brothers and to look forward at what God was doing in his life now or what God would be doing in the future. Somewhere after Joseph was sold into slavery, God and Joseph worked this out. Joseph gave this up to God. So sometime. Long before his brothers ever came down to Egypt, Joseph had forgiven his brothers for what they had done. And he had to have done it. I'm not just speculating. He had to have done it. Because if he had not done it, if he had not forgiven his brothers, if he was still holding on to the hurt and the pain that was caused by his brothers selling him into slavery, and he would have been one bitter and angry young man when his brothers came into Egypt. Assuming that he was even be in that position at all that he was in. Because remember, God was blessing what he did. He was being fruitful. What are his son's names? Forgetful and fruitful. God, it says, God helped him forget. God made me forget, which means God helped me change my point of view from what had happened to me to what was going on now. And I no longer hang on to that. I no longer look back on that. I don't let that bother me now because I see what God is doing right here and right now. 
And God blessed the steps he did. God helped him grow wherever he was, whether it was in jail, where he was serving Potiphar, or now where he's second command in all of Egypt. God was blessing him and he was growing and being fruitful in everything that he did. But none of that would have happened if he could not have forgotten what happened to him by his brothers and by his family. And when we talk about forgiveness and we use that phrase, forgive and forget, but how often do we forget? How often do we actually put that behind us and move on? I was in a forgiveness class. It was taught a long time ago, like 2005, maybe 2006. And, and you know, it was said in that class, it was taught with all the best intentions, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to knock on the class. That you should not forget that the hurt that was done to you. That's what they taught in the class, okay? Do not forget it. And now, I'm trying to understand, you know, where they're coming from. Because they're talking about times in your life where maybe you were abused or hurt by someone, right? And they're telling you, you need to forgive them, but don't forget it. Because you don't want it to happen again. Okay? And when you go through the class, you're like, yeah, right, okay, sounds good, yeah. But then later on, as you start going through God's word, you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't line up necessarily, right? I mean, understand what they were trying to tell. I mean, this is a very multi-layered and nuanced subject when we start talking about forgiveness, especially when we're dealing with abuse and things like that, okay? But I just want to say this. Where would Joseph have been, right? Where would he have been if he had held on to that? I mean, honestly, if he'd held on to the pain and to the hurt, had he not forgotten it? If for 20 years it was the only thing that inhabited his thoughts, right? You know, in the book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis describes hell as a place where no one forgets anything. He says it, it was his idea that, C.S. Lewis, it was his idea that in hell, each person would remember every offense. They would remember every slight. They would remember every cruel exchange of words, whether it was said to them or they said it, Right? They would remember everything that was ever wrong that was done to them or every wrong that they had done to someone else and everyone would be unforgiving. That would be hell. In other words, if you take that idea, right, that life would have been hell for Joseph. When you're holding on to things like that and you're unforgiving and you're remembering everything that's been done to you and you're letting that build up inside of you, your life's hell. How can you move on with life? How can you continue on and let God use you in these situations when you're refusing to let go of all the hurt and the pain that's happened to you previously? But Joseph let go of it. You have to let go of it. It says that God took it from him, but God won't take it until you let go of it. God will wrestle you and help you release it, but he's not going to take it until you let go of it. He wants you to let go of it. And so somewhere... We don't see that picture exactly. But somewhere in Joseph's life, he let go of that and God took that from him. And he no longer dwelt on the past. And because of that, his life became fruitful. Right? He no longer dwelt on the past. Because in order for Joseph to be able to look upon his life and see that God was with him and that God was working through him, that God was blessing him, even in the midst of these trials, even in the midst of jail, even in the midst of slavery, right? He had to have forgiven his brothers and forgotten all that they did to him. He had to have. And with God's help, he did. And his son's names testified to that. That's what his son's names testify to. That is, in a sense, a testimony of Joseph. Forgetfulness and fruitfulness. Because that's what his life went from. He put it behind him. 
And he went ahead. Because it's not just about, some people talk, they use the phrase, survive and thrive. Right? It's not just about surviving and thriving. It's really about you know, persevering, but then being redeemed and then being transformed. Right? When we allow the love of God to bear fruit in our lives and in the lives of those we touch, we have to be redeemed and transformed. We need to be forgetful, then fruitful. Right? There's a quote by Greg Laurie that I saw. It says, Greg Laurie said this. He says, I don't like to, I don't like to live in the past. He says, I barely live in the present. Right? Because I'm always thinking about the future. Right? Or in other words, we can think about what it says in Philippians chapter 3. It says, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we need to be doing. Right? So what fruitfulness in your life is being held back because you're not going to forget something that should be forgotten. Because you will not forgive. It's not just about forgiving others. It's also, on the flip side of that coin, about being forgiven. Some of us struggle with the idea of being forgiven because we don't believe we're worthy. Are you sure? Have you seen my track record? Right? Have you seen my rap sheet? I don't deserve to be forgiven. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that due to the righteousness of Christ and your faith in Jesus, your sins have been forgiven. And they've not only been forgiven, they've been forgotten. They've been forgotten. Right? Psalms 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And then Isaiah 43.25 says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now, does God forget your sins as in just completely, he doesn't remember them anymore? What? You did that? I didn't remember you did that. Thanks for bringing it back to my attention. Right? No. God, God's omniscient. He knows everything. Right? He's all-knowing. So when we talk about him being forgetful, it's not like that. It's not like you and I forgetting where we put our car keys. Right? God has chosen to forget or overlook our sins because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and because of his great love for us. And that is how we are to be as well. Right? That is how we are to forgive. We are to, be, to forgive as we have been forgiven. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love is patient and it's kind and love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Right? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Right? And in there, when it says that uh, it is not resentful, that means that it keeps no record of wrongs. That means what? That means, oh... Love forgets things. It doesn't keep a record. You're not keeping this right secret message about what your spouse has done all the times that they've made you bad just in the last hour, right? Oh, right? No, it, it takes that and it forgets it, right? It puts it away. It overlooks it because love is greater than that, right? Love, forgiveness, forgetfulness leads to fruitfulness. If you're in Christ, then God has, and here's the other thing, in case you're wondering about the firstborn, secondborn, here's, here's a picture of that. 
when you're in Christ, God has put to death your firstborn. You might have thought the firstborn was the best. And when I'm talking about firstborn, I'm talking about your first birth, because that was in the flesh. It tells us in Hebrews 10, chapter 9, uh, verse 9, sorry, Hebrews 10, verse 9. It says that God does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Right? Understand that. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. That's what we just saw with Ephraim and Manasseh when he was giving the blessing. He took the firstborn and he and he established the second instead. When you look at that from a spiritual perspective, what it's saying is that if God has put to death your firstborn, which is your flesh, and he has established you now through your secondborn, which is you being born again in the spirit. That's where it starts. That's where it starts. So all I have to say is bear fruit in God. Because without him you can't do it at all. God will help you be forgiving be forgiven, be forgetful, and be fruitful. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you just continue to work this out with us, that, that you just continue to take our hearts and mold them and shape them and, and make us more holy as you are holy. And in that, Lord, I pray that we can just continue to forgive others as you have forgiven us, that we can continue to accept forgiveness, even though sometimes you might have a trouble with it because we just think we aren't worthy of such great love. But the truth is, really, your love is so great. It is hard for us to understand but we are forgiven through Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we can just continue also to be forgetful and then be fruitful. Grow in the Lord and let uh, our fruit grow for God, that we can continue to shine in the darkness for those, Lord, who need to be pointed towards Jesus. So we thank you for this, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.